The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Genesis chapter 3 for the last time. Move up here a little closer. It is uh, Smorgasbord Sunday. Does everybody remember that? I told you that a couple weeks ago. It was what today was going to be. If you're new and you don't know what Smorgasbord Sunday is, uh, something I made up. It uh, is based off of uh, regular experience back in our college days, my wife and I's college days, at the end of each semester, uh, whether Christmas break or summer, the kitchen staff, dining hall staff, would clear out the freezer. Everything that was left over from the year got put out on the buffet bar, and that was dinner that night. So whether it was Mexican, next to Chinese, next to American, it didn't matter. It was what was left over, and they weren't going to let it go to waste. And so it was smorgasbord night, and that's kind of uh, what I have modeled these particular sermons on at the end of each chapter or each uh, section that we've been looking at here in Genesis, I take a Sunday or two to just talk about really whatever I want to talk about. Okay, I don't do that very often. It's the only time other than this we always allow the text to drive uh, the sermon content, direction, order, everything is based there. But at the end of these sections, sometimes we've had questions that I've wanted to answer for you. Sometimes you guys have brought me questions that I haven't been able to address in the sermons, or sometimes it was just stuff that I thought was interesting that didn't fit anywhere else. And so here you go, Smorgasbord Sunday. Next Sunday we'll be in chapter 4, and we'll be starting our normal, regular study. Uh, Today we'll be much more relaxed, much more uh, conversational, Though it will be very much one-sided conversation, okay, I'm speaking to you and you all get to sit there and smile at me, which is what I like to see. Uh, but that's the plan. Before we get started today, had uh, three things that I wanted to talk about first, um, just to get them cleared out of the air. The first two of these have to do with the sermon I preached, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before. If you were here two weeks ago, raise your hand. Let's see it. Put them up high. You don't have to be embarrassed, okay? <laughs> People here know. All right. I told two stories in that sermon, and I caught so much flack over these past two weeks for those two stories that I had to come back to them now today and address a few misconceptions or questions that came up, and I I don't want to let this go. If you weren't here for two weeks ago, you didn't hear those sermons, you might be a little confused by what I'm about to say and show you. Um, Just hang out or go home and listen to that message when you get back. The first had to do with my fireworks story. Okay, you remember the fireworks story about what normally happens on, when you go hear the fireworks and stuff? And I, I just tried to lay out in a very, I thought, regular format of, of all the things that would occur normally around July 4th as you're going to hear something. And in the process, I made a reference to chimichangas. And I don't know if people don't understand what chimichangas are, or maybe you've never had one before, or they didn't catch what I said. So I thought, I've got to revisit this and make sure that we're all on the same page here about these chimichangas. So let's start by clearing up what I did not say, okay? First of all, I did not say a chichi's conga, okay? This is from Ed's birthday party back in 2006. Sorry, it's small. It was what? I don't know how old you were. Ten. It was okay. Tenth birthday party. 
How many? Oh, yeah, he said it. How many of you uh, ever ate at Chi-Chi's back when that restaurant chain was around? Raise your hand, okay. Yeah. If you ever went there on your birthday, they had a slightly different practice than all the other. I know this for a reason. I'll tell you that in a moment. They had a slightly different practice than all the other restaurants did. Like when it was your birthday and you were there, they didn't just come out and do the happy, happy birthday, that thing. They brought out a sombrero that was roughly the size of your table. They put it on your head, and then they danced around the table singing happy birthday to you. I know this because when I was in junior high, we went out to dinner one night with my aunt and uncle, and they thought it would be really, really funny. We're at Chi-Chi's. They thought it would be really funny to tell the waitstaff it was my birthday, which it was not. So the waitstaff comes out, sombrero on the head, dancing around. And you know when you're in junior high, the last thing you want is attention drawn to you. The last thing you really want is that, okay, <laughs> ever, all right? So that, I did not say Chi-Chi's Conga, nor did I say Chich Marin and Tonga, just because I wanted to work Chich Marin into a sermon one day. It's like a, something to mark off my list. I said chimichanga. A chimichanga, for those of you who are not aware, is a deep-fried burrito. Now, I want you to pause and let those words sink deeply <laughs> into your heart and soul. Bow your heads for a moment. Think about this. So you take a burrito with whatever you normally stuff a burrito with, you roll it up tight, and then you baptize it in melted animal fat until the outside, yes, out of the mouth of babes right there. You, 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 you fry it until it is crispy brown on the outside and then infused with lard on the inside, and you pull it out, and you put it on a, on a plate. Here, I'll move over to the side, and on this example, you see they've covered it in some kind of a sauce, and there's beans and rice and the whole nine yards. And so, so you take all the normal effects of eating that, and then lubricate it with lard, and you understand then my joke about what happens as the after effect of eating a chimichanga. Are there any questions about this? Are we good on that one? Okay, if you had a question, I wasn't going to take it right now. We were going to deal with that afterwards. The next had to do with the uh, story, that was number one. Number two had to do with the story I told about playing chess. Remember that? Some of you just started laughing. Don Jameson is just laughing real hard right off the bat. I told this story, I will retell this one slightly. I told the story of when I was in high school that I played chess, that I was okay at chess. I didn't say I was good. I even went back and re-listened to this story to make sure that I, I was right about my memory here. I didn't say I was good. I just said I was okay. I said I could beat you know, anyone in my high school, but you need to understand our entire high school was 70 people. Okay, So when I say, and not all those people play chess, so when I say that I was better than all those people, you're talking about six, seven people that, we, that were playing, I said I was in a competition, which I was. It was a multi-school competition, schools from all over the region, and I got third place, okay? That was a long time ago. I'm not good at it anymore. None of that really caught me too much flack. What caught me flack was that I said that most of the time when I played, I would play to just simply win, quick checkmate as quickly as possible, move on. But that every now and then I would... Whatever, for whatever reason, whether it was a person I was playing, if they had made me mad or frustrated me, or if it was some people who were watching, I would not just play to win, I would play to decimate my opponent, to take all their pieces off the board before I, I killed them. <laughs> so I, it started when I got home. I got home, and Jamie's not here today because Nathaniel's been sick this weekend, but um, I get home, and uh, Jamie, in the bedroom, as we're changing clothes, looks at me and says, I could see you being maniacal like that. <laughs> She's like, if you were in politics or business, I could see you trying to hurt people. And I'm thinking, it was, I know, wow, I was like, what did I do? 
Like, there's something about me that I'm not aware of, or do I present myself in a different way? So I had that angle there, people questioning my heart in, in various ways. On the other end, I had people just outright making fun of me for being a dork. And so one night that week, one night that week, I'm together with some guys. Bob Deacon, who's sitting in the back, is there. And uh, Bob Deacon pulls out his cell phone. He's like, hey, Stacy, uh, give me a call. He says this in front of everybody when it's quiet. And I'm like, why? I I have a a new ringtone for you. I want you to hear your new ringtone. He's like, I know you like rap. And you're a nerd. And so I found something that I thought would work. And so I pulled out my phone. I hope this works. We've never tried this before at Cornerstone. I pulled out my phone. I dialed Bob's number. This is what I hear. Turn it up. So I hung up on him. For those of you who couldn't hear that song, that was Weird Al Yankovic's White and Nerdy. It's now apparently my theme song. To which I was actually kind of, uh, I didn't even tell you this, Bob, I was kind of flattered later because the only people I know who have theme songs are superheroes, the president, and sports teams. So he has moved me into a new echelon now, uh, and I've, I've accepted that, though, Bob, I did want to warn you up front that I have every intention of decimating you someday, <laughs> just so you know. That's two of my three things. Uh, number three, slightly more serious than those two, was I wanted to give you all a quick update on McComas, take this opportunity since it's a little more relaxed anyway, just to talk through where we're at, what's been happening, to let you know how you can keep praying. Have you, have you guys seen the discussion column in, column in Cobblestone where I've been putting updates as things come up, okay? If you haven't, go on to Cobblestone and see what's there. I, I try to put something there every time something happens. If you don't have access to Cobblestone, let us know. We'll let you know. But for everybody, uh, four things have happened really this past week that are all good steps in the process. Number one, we had the hearing for the conditional use permit. Um, remember that for Virginia Beach, that's something we have to have happen. We can't just buy the space. The city has to give us this conditional use permit to use it. And so there's three steps in that process. Number one is the planning department has to approve it. Number two, the planning commission has to approve it. And then number three, city council has to approve it. Okay, so those are the three steps. The planning department approved it. This past Wednesday, it went to the planning commission, and so I went to the hearing, and it was, I was all, I don't know, I was nervous about going, but it was the biggest nothing in the world because there was no opposition to our application, there were no issues with it, so they simply had me come up and say my name and that I was representing the church for this, and then I sat down. That was all there was to it, and they approved it, so we're past that part, so now it's going to go to city council, I think. The soonest will be May 8th, the latest will be May 22nd, just when they can fit it on their agenda. So keep praying for that process because nothing happens apart from that. Uh, Number two, our architect has given us the first uh, schematics back on what the space is going to look like. It will not be the same as what you saw in the packet, what I put up on the screen behind me that time we presented it. As soon as that is set, we will show it to you. Uh, They're still tweaking, and the the owner of the building has to approve it, so we're going to get past that part first. But we're very, very pleased with the space. He estimates that we could fit, I mean, if, if... Fire codes weren't an issue. He estimates we could fit up to 400 people in there, but fire code is an issue, which means we can't fit more than 300 people in there, okay? So 300 will be our max capacity from a fire perspective, 
Uh, however, the space is large enough for more than that, and we're thankful. That gives us quite a bit of, of wiggle room in terms of what we do, how we do things. We'll show you that as soon as we can. Uh, number three, we've had more contractors going through the space, looking at the plans, trying to give us some prices. But again, we won't get firm, firm prices until Mr. Kroll approves the schematics, the architectural plans are done, the city has approved them. As soon as all those pieces are done, which should happen in the next two, three, four weeks, hard to say exactly just how quickly people move, that's when we'll have those firm numbers and we'll let you know. And then number four, did everyone get an email this week uh, from us about the, the space? If you didn't, check your spam because that's probably where it went. Um, if we have your email, we sent you a, a copy of this. We sent out a very broad email just letting people know, people who were connected with us a long time ago, people in other ministries, other areas, friends of ours, whatever. We're spreading the word, okay, of what's going on, what the Lord has, has opened up for us potentially. Uh, if you read that email, you noticed that we didn't give you a price that we needed. We just said be praying, be thinking about what you're going to do because we're going to need some cash, all right, to make it happen. Uh, it's to that last point then that uh, we wanted to talk with you, and I promise we had no, nothing to do with the janitor not coming in on time today. If you weren't here earlier, you don't realize what happened, but the janitor didn't show up at 8 o'clock to open the building for us today. And so about 8.18, I think it was, Chris Lown calls me and says, hey, there's no one here. Can you call the janitor? I called the janitor. First one didn't answer. The second one had heart surgery. So he, he's like, hold on, I'll call the other guy. So he calls the third guy who was supposed to be here, and he says, hey, he's on his way, but he lives a long way away from you, so it's going to be a while. So we made the decision at 8.30 just to cancel Sunday school, all right? Welcome to, if you're new to this kind of environment, this is what meeting in a school does to you sometimes. Uh, but everyone was gracious, and people who didn't get the message who showed up early just helped us set up. We appreciated the extra help. Um, but we were planning to talk to you about this today anyway, just to simply say we really, really need each and every one of you to be thinking about what it is that you can do financially to help with this project. We don't really like talking about money. We never talk about money ever and asking for anything. However, fact of the matter is that if this is going to happen, we're going to need some funds. And uh, we've taken a little bit of comfort and example from Matt Chandler. If you're familiar with that name, he's a pastor in Texas. And uh, he has uh, gone through some of these things, and their church was meeting in a temporary facility. And out of the blue, a supermarket, they were much, much larger. Thousands of people were showing up in multiple services to, to, for this church. But a supermarket was abandoned and came on the market out of nowhere, and it was like $4 million, and they had 60 days. So, so if they had $4 million they needed to raise in 60 days, and so they came up with a great campaign. Are you ready? It was called, We Need $4 Million in 60 Days. <laughs> That's it. That's the whole campaign. And he, his, his philosophy was, look, you guys have it, we need it, let's get together and make this thing happen. Um, that's kind of where we're at now. Praise the Lord, we don't need $4 million, though if anyone would like to give that, we will accept it. <laughs> don't want to preclude anything there. Uh, we're going to need some money. Uh, we're gonna, we have, I think, 60 days from today, actually, to raise that money. We don't have the firm, exact, specific numbers to give you yet. But that doesn't mean you have to wait, okay? You can start doing that now, giving. Um, you can designate stuff to the building fund, but you don't even have to do that. You can just give it in, in addition to your regular giving. We're, we're going to need some, some help here, and so we're hoping that the Lord will open doors through people inside Cornerstone, outside Cornerstone, whatever the case may be. Uh, the more you can do, the better. I was trying to come up with some kind of... Uh, something to give you in terms of like something to pray for here. And by my guesstimate, 
guesstimate, we're going to pray for two different numbers, okay? First number we're going to pray for is $500,000. Okay, now everybody breathe, okay? $500,000, I think if I'm right in my guesstimation, that that would be enough for us to purchase the entire 10,000 square feet, build the whole thing out, furnish the whole thing, like the whole, whole kit and caboodle, okay? And maybe, that, maybe that's too much. I don't think so. Hopefully it's not too little. Would really love to have the whole 10,000 square feet, but if that's not possible, you know, we're looking at the 6,820 square feet. And, and again, we're, we're thinking we'll need a minimum of 65,000 to make that happen. It may be more. It probably will be more the way things tend to go. Um, so just be thinking about what you can do, what your family can do. Uh, this is not $4 million in 60 days. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. But for us, it's a lot of money, and we've never tried to ask for that or raise that before. And so we're just asking everyone to pray. And then you can also tell people you know who might have money to pray as well. Okay? We're not against that. You are in Genesis 3. Let's take a few minutes here at the end. We're going to read this chapter one last time and then talk about a few things together in our remaining minutes here this morning. Look at verse 1, if you will, please. Moses writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we have, at least I have, thoroughly enjoyed this passage of Scripture. It has been a real blessing for me to sit and study week in and week out and try to understand what happened to this perfect world that you had made, to see how sin came in and so thoroughly and utterly destroyed all of the good things that you had done here, to see how man and woman were not just passive victims in this process, but to see them as active rebels against you, doing everything in their power to sin against, to rebel against everything that you had done, everything that you had had made them to be, Lord, they rebelled against it all. And through all of this learning, Lord, we have tried to keep coming back again and again to understand what this does for our understanding of the gospel, what it does for our understanding of Christ and his death on the cross for us. And we have seen, Lord, that through all of this, it is... This is not simply a passage of of punishment, of cursing, of retribution. Even here in these verses, we have seen redemption. We have seen the reality that you are a good and loving God who will not leave man and woman in this state. And so we rejoice, Lord, because as we have seen now numerous times in chapter 1 and 2 and here again in 3, This isn't just a single story that's all by itself as part of some other continuum of things, Lord. You have a grand story that sits atop all of this. That that above all of these events, all of these actions, all of these stories, you are in control. And so we have learned most about you through this. Not about ourselves, but most about you. That you love us, that you would send your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Lord, and I pray this morning as we finish up, we look at these last few things, Lord, that you will not only guide what I say, but guide me in how I say it, help the hearts of everyone listening to think and feel right thoughts and feelings, to place our trust ultimately in you, help us, Lord, to to bow our knees bow our submission, our will, bow our minds, everything to who you are and what you're doing in this world. Lord, we want to be thoroughly biblical in everything that we do say and think. And so we come this morning asking your spirit to help us as we talk about some of these questions that are remaining this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I really um, only have one, one topic one set of questions for you today, uh, questions that were on my mind very strongly from the very beginning of Genesis 1, actually, as I was looking ahead to the day when we would get here into chapter 3 and have to think about some of the things that we have studied over these past few weeks. I think I even warned you on at least two occasions that there was a real possibility, opportunity, I'm not sure what word I should use here, that that some of the things that we studied over these past few weeks could potentially shake our faith. And 
I don't know now, you know, after the fact, as I look back on it, if I overbuild those things or not. But what I am aware of is that there are some serious questions that are raised here in Genesis 3 that we haven't really addressed yet. Some of the most serious questions, I think, to date in our study that haven't even come up. And some of you have asked me things on the side about some of these things, but there's there's a lot more than even what you asked me. And so what I want to do today is take a few minutes with us to look at some hard questions, which means that I'm asking you up front here, right off the bat, to do everything in your, po- in your mind, in your heart, everything that's possible for you to try to hone your thoughts in on the very specific questions that I'm going to be asking. I'm, I'm going to ask you to allow the Spirit to direct your mind to direct your emotions in these things because these are not flippant questions and they're not ones that we can ignore. And I think that too often, and I might be wrong, maybe I'm being too hard on people, but too often when we run into hard questions or when people run into hard questions, their first response is to what? Ignore them. Head in the sand. I don't want to deal with it. We'll let someone else deal with that. I just want to think about it. Well, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the right response to things. In fact, I think as we look at passages like in Colossians 4, where we're supposed to give an answer to to the people around us for the the faith we have, I think that one of the, the best ways to do that is to show people that, yes, there are hard questions associated with our our faith, our belief. We're not afraid of them. We're going to be honest with them and give them the answers we can give in humility as best we can. And so we're going to try to do that this morning. The topic I want us to address here is the origin of evil. That's a big one, isn't it? <laughs> that's a very big one. That, that's a topic that I am not an expert in, okay, in terms of how to discuss with people. That's a topic that will often come up when people are denying the existence of God. The argument normally goes something like this, okay, and I'm going to try my best to accurately reflect it just by way of example. So you believe that God is all good and all loving, right? Shake your head yes. You believe that, okay? Well, then explain to me the the presence of evil in this world because if God is really all good, certainly he wouldn't want us to suffer, and so if he's powerful, he would be able to just wipe evil out of the world. Or maybe he's not all-powerful and therefore he can't do it. He wants to, but he can't. So either God is not powerful enough to do anything about evil, or he's not good enough to want to. Either way, the God you say you believe in isn't real. Okay. Now that was a very truncated version of the argument. Do you understand the, the point of the, of the argument of the logic right there? I'll say right off the bat that that argument at its core, is, is in, it's flawed. It's, it's a logical fallacy to present the argument in that manner. You say, those are big words. What do you mean? Okay, here's what I mean. Imagine for a moment, parents, that your child comes up to you on the day they're going to get their immunizations, immunizations for something, and they say, look, Mom, Dad, if they could talk. Look, Mom, Dad, I understand a few things about you. You say you love me, right? That I'm the most important thing in your life. That's great. And my understanding is that you, as an adult, have the ability to basically do whatever you want, as opposed to me as a child who's stuck. So the fact that you're taking me to a doctor's office to get jabbed with needles on purpose, and that you're actually going to pay them to jab me with needles, either means, A, you don't really love me, 
or B, like somebody's going to be outside the door with a gun taking you in to, to have this done. You're, you're, you're not capable of making a choice to the contrary. And as parents, we all hear that and go, first of all, wow, you're talking, you're a baby. That's the first thing we would say. Second thing we would say is, no, that's not the case. There's other reasons why we're making these choices. You, you can't box someone into one of only two options. It's A or B, that's it, when there really are more options available. And, and the primary problem with the argument that's put forward around the problem of evil and the existence of God is that they're trying to present the argument as if there's only two options, as if God's not all good or he's not all powerful and therefore he doesn't exist or you've got to come up with some other... Well, there are other reasons. There's more to that argument than what those people are putting forward. I'm just helping you try to understand this thing. But at, at the root of it, regardless of the perhaps incorrect ways that it's presented, this is a real issue. How do we understand the origin and the continuation of evil in this world as believers in Jesus Christ? Because Genesis 3, whether you realize it or not, is about the origin of evil. And so let's take a few minutes this morning and ask some questions and try to answer some questions as best we can to help us think through this biblically so that when people ask us these kinds of questions or these things come up, we are ready to give good, sound, biblical answers to those questions. Again, we can't be exhaustive, but we want to at least have something prepared in our minds to, to answer these things. First thing we need to do here is to clarify the question. Because again, normally, and I've, I've purposely been saying it this way up to this point, normally people bring this question to you about the origin of evil. And therein lies the first problem with the question, because how do you define the word evil? That's a pretty loose word if you think about it. Because in many people's heart and minds, what is evil is only the things that are perhaps distasteful to them, things that they don't like. And so when they see children abused, they say that's evil, and we would all agree with that. And yet when they look at the affair they're having with their, their coworker, that's not evil, that's love. Oh, that's a problem. When, when, I see, when I see war happening and people dying, that's evil. But when I look at the fact that I'm a habitual liar, it's just a bad habit. See, the very first problem we run into here is that when most people are addressing this issue of the question of evil, they're defining it in their own terms, and therefore it's almost impossible to have the discussion with somebody if you want to get right down to it. What I would encourage your, you to be thinking about and addressing is not to discuss the origin of evil. Let's discuss the origin of sin. Because sin is a theological word. It's a theological concept that, if we're defining biblically, takes the definition out of the realm of man and puts it now in God's realm. Now we can have some real thoughts and discussions about this because we're, we're outside of just personal taste and preference. And I know people in our world use the word sin too. You know, this chocolate dessert is sinful. Okay, I understand how they're using the word. But I'm not using the word that way. I'm trying to say, let's, let's let the scriptures define this word as being anything that is contrary, that is a violation of God's rule and reign, and that has all those consequences that, that come with that. That's what we're talking about when we say we're going to discuss the origin of sin. And I think it's important because it forces us to come to terms with a number of things that we believe or say we believe about God and about ourselves and about this world. For example, what do we really believe about God 
his sovereignty, and the origin of sin. What do you really believe about this? I, I define God's sovereignty as this, that God is in control of all things. Okay? It's a real basic, simple definition of God's sovereignty, that God is in control of all things. And so the question here is, does that include sin or not? Is sin inside of God's sovereignty, under his control, or is it outside of his sovereignty? And here's what I'm telling you you need to be thinking with me right now. If you say that sin is outside of God's sovereignty, then understand then that sin was outside of God's control. He had no control over it whatsoever. If you say that, you are saying that God is not sovereign. Do you follow just the simple thinking here? If you say that anything, whether it's sin or anything else, is outside of God's control, then God is not sovereign because not all things are under his control. Something else out there is also its own self-entity, self-existing entity. Something out there is equal to God, and God is not sovereign overall. So if we say that sin is outside of God's sovereignty, we run into a, a major problem. If I say that sin is within God's sovereignty, that it is under his control, then what becomes the next question in most people's minds? Well, then, does that mean that God caused sin? If he's in control of all things and, and sin is one of the things that he's in control of, does that mean that God is, is the ultimate cause of sin? And the answer to that question is no. God is not the cause of sin. He is not the origin of it. He is not the one who tempted Adam and Eve there in Genesis 3. He is not the one who made them sin. And if you want to write down a, a passage of Scripture, we could go to several places, but this is the clearest, most direct reference to this. You turn to James 1.13, and you see these words, Let no one say when he is tempted, I mean tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He's not the source of anybody's sin, not Adam and Eve's, not anyone else. So if God didn't cause sin, and yet he's sovereign over it, what do we say? How do we understand that? Well, we would say that God allowed it. He didn't cause sin, but he allowed it to occur all within his sovereign plan. And you say, whoa, 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 wait, wait. How can he allow something and yet not cause it? What, I don't understand the distinction in the two. Well, can you think of a Bible story that perhaps would illustrate that well? Anybody? Okay. No, he certainly wouldn't have. God didn't cause that sin. There's an even bigger one. An entire book is written about it. It's the book of Job. In Job, in the opening verses, you see God in heaven and Satan coming before him saying, look, I'd like to tempt your, your servant, Job. He's a righteous man, but it's because of this, this, and this that he's, he's so good. If you take all that stuff away, he'll curse you and die. And God says, okay. He gives him permission. He allows this to occur. He's not causing it, but he is allowing it to happen there to Job. And so Job's sin or his temptation and the trials he faces are not caused by God, but they're allowed by God. It's just a, an illustration of what I'm talking about. And let's clarify something then. Does that make God like the biggest cosmic meanie in the world? That he would allow people to be tempted by sin, to allow sin to exist when he could have prevented it? Is that what we're making him out to be? Because understand what you're, what you're saying here. 
God didn't cause sin. Okay, I agree with that. He allowed it to occur, but He didn't have to. He, he could have prevented it. Is that, does that make God a meanie then? Like, why didn't God just step in and say, hey, look, no sin. Look, no tree. Look, no serpent. Look, no, no opportunity to violate my rule and reign. That way you never have to deal with the consequences of this. Well, I would simply point out to you, just as an interesting observation, and you can take this for what you want, that most of the people who have a real problem with that issue, that question, are the same people who, in every other arena of life, don't want God to be in control of anything. <laughs> it's like they want him to be in control at the beginning when something went wrong, but after that they don't want his, his input interaction any further. Remember what we talked about when we looked at the moral responsibility of man in chapter 2? That God gave man responsibilities. Why did God give man responsibilities? Do you remember? It's because he made man to be a morally responsible person. He gave man the ability to choose. He gave man the ability to obey or disobey. God did not want, I believe, God did not want robots who simply loved him because they had to. He gave man a choice. And are we really going to sit back now and point our fingers at God and be like, well, you shouldn't have given us this choice. You want that choice in everything else. You want that choice when you go home later today and you want to do that thing you want to do that is sin. Then you're going to be sitting there secretly in your mind, I'm glad I can do what I want. You know, fact of the matter is, God's not being a cosmic meanie because he didn't stop it from happening. It was within his sovereignty. He allowed it to occur and he gave us the choice. He gave Adam and Eve the choice of what they were going to do, who they were going to serve, whose rule and reign they were going to live under. And we all know what they chose, which leads me to a second question then. What do we really believe about God's plan then in the origin of sin? If I understand that he's allowing this to occur, what does that tell me about his plan? Was sin a part of his plan or not? You know, was God in, you know, in heaven and he sees the serpent, he's like, oh no, what's, what's going to happen? Oh, they just did it. Everything's ruined now. I had hoped that it would be like this. And now it's not going to be like that anymore. I've got to come up with a, a, a different plan, a plan B at this point. Hey, son, spirit, come here. What do you guys want to do to fix this? I didn't know this was going to happen. Oh, you want to die on the cross? Oh, you want to make it you know, effective in people's hearts and minds? Great. One, two, three, Trinity, let's go. Okay, Is that like how they're working this out? That the cross is somehow plan B? No. The cross is not plan B. There's no sense in which sin was not foreseen by God and planned for by God from before the foundations of the world. And if you want proof of that, biblical proof to think that through, just think about our whole doctrine of election. It's built around that understanding. That Paul can say there in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Wait a minute. Why did I need grace before the world began? 
Why did, why did God have to choose me apart from my works before the world began? It's because he knew. It's because he understood the choices that would be made. It's because sin is not something that surprised him. He was aware of it and planned on it from the very beginning. Also think about the comment there in Revelation where Jesus, and I love this when Jesus is described as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Think about that comment. Before Genesis 1-1, he's already as good as dead. He understands. God is not surprised by sin. His plan isn't altered by it. And while sometimes, and I might have done this along the way, and if I did, I apologize. I tried to be careful with my wording each and every Sunday, but in the multitude of words, there, there's plenty of mistakes that occur. I always tried, or tried to never say that, that God had expected to be like this, and then it got altered. Things were altered from man's perspective only. But from God's perspective, he was aware, and within his plan, nothing surprised him, including sin. We need to understand that about it. Now, here's number three. What then do we really believe about ourselves and the origin of sin? Because to me, as I think both logically and theologically about these questions, I have no issues, no concerns in understanding God's role in all of this. What I find personally more fascinating is what these questions reveal about us, about our hearts in all of these things. For example here, it's easy for us to focus our minds on this one event and point our fingers at God and say, you're at fault. Who do we sound like, by the way, when we do that? We sound like Adam, like kids, <laughs> yeah, kids too. We sound like Adam there in Genesis 3 after God calls him out. He blames God. We're doing the same thing that he did back then. It's easiest for us to sit there and point our fingers at God and say, you're at fault, and yet, can I ask a question? Aren't we still choosing to sin each and every day, every one of us? Like, maybe I'm alone in that one, I don't know, because several of you just sat there like, Aren't we all still choosing to sin every single day? If the answer to that question is yes, then are you sitting there every time you sing going, God, it's your fault, God, it's your fault, God, it's your fault, this time, God, it's your fault, this time, it's your At what point do we begin to take responsibility? Because I think a lot of this comes back to that. That we don't want to be responsible for sin. Because if we're responsible... We deserve punishment, and punishment is not something that any of us want. So, you know, you made the comment about kids. You're right. <laughs> Our kids are very much this way, aren't they? When you say to them, did you do this? Yes, but he made me. Because <laughs> if it's his fault, then he gets the, the lion's share of the punishment, and I'm, I'm, I'm protected some from this. When we react to sin, the origin of sin in this way, I think it shows us a great deal about our own hearts that we do not want to give an account for our own actions and choices. Even though every single day, we choose more and more of the same. Another thing I learn about man here is how subject, subjective we are when we think about these things. And I pointed that out at the very beginning, right? We see the, the starving children and we're like, oh, that's so evil. I wish sin had never happened. 
And then you're over here doing this other thing and it doesn't even cross your mind. Oh, this is terrible. I wish, I wish God would just step in and zap and make this occur, but I want to keep this little area over here just for myself. This is exactly how we are. This is how all people are. We don't like the things we don't like, but the sins we like we'll protect. We'll rename them. We'll call them different things. We'll treat them differently. It's, it's common. Every single one of us in this room does this. So what definition are we going to work with? Our definition of sin or God's definition of sin? Are we only going to react when we hear the word cancer, when someone dies, when there's a disaster that occurs? Are we going to react to sin and evil in this world every time we see it in our lives, in the lives of the people around us, in our children's lives, in whatever? How come we're not as outraged about sin when we see something little as we are when we see something big? Is my question. It's no different. I think that these kinds of things, these big events that draw people's attention, the starving children, the disasters, the disease that people tend to focus on on this question, I think these things serve a far different purpose than what most people give them credit for. Most people want to look at those things and be like, see, these are expressions of evil in this world and the consequences of sin that we don't like. God, why? And they point their finger at him. I think God has an entirely different view of that. And, and, and for that, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 13. And I purposely didn't put any slides up today. I didn't want any slides today because I wanted this to be much more conversational. Some of you have forgotten how to turn in your Bible because of the slide thing anyway. So we've got to remind you every now and then how to do that. I want you to look at Luke 13 because here Jesus is going to basically answer this question for us of how do we understand these things? These disasters, these problems, all this stuff that, that otherwise, you know, we might just look at our, and point our finger at God. Why, God? You're at fault here. Well, let's, let's see what Jesus has to say. In verse 1, it says, there were, some, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, pause. We don't have any idea what this is talking about. In terms, there's no other account of this, but just... Face value reading it, apparently Pilate had killed some people from Galilee, had mixed their blood with the, the blood of the sacrifices, which would have been not only gruesome and violent and brutal, but it also have been sacrilegious. Okay? It was offensive that this would occur. Okay? So this is a big deal in this day, just based on what, what's said right there. And he answered them, Jesus is answering them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? And again, pause. He's asking this question because in that day and age, seeing a disaster like that didn't elicit a why God response. It elicited a, oh, you must have been really bad and God just got you kind of response. The assumption would have been that people who suffered in that manner, who went through those kinds of ordeals, must have been really bad people. And so Jesus is like, no. Do you think that those Galileans were any worse than all the other Galileans that are out there? No, no, that's not the case at all. Verse 3, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What? He doesn't address the event at all, really, does he? He looks at the event, he says, okay, you see it? Unless you repent, you're going to perish just like them. Hey, here's another story, verse 4. 
or those 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, a building collapse? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, unless you repent, same thing, you will all likewise perish. Jesus looks at the disasters and He says that the purpose of the disaster is to draw the rest of us to repentance because we're all going to die too. The purpose of the disaster, of the cancer, of, of whatever, is not to simply look at it and go, why God, why? And I understand, I understand the emotions that go with that sometimes. But the ultimate purpose is to remind us of the fact that every single one of us is going to die. It may not be from a tower falling on your head. It may not be because some evil leader or ruler somewhere brutally killed you in a very public and, 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 and offensive way. It may be when you're 150 years old and your heart just simply stops. We are all going to die. We need to repent. We're all going to die. We need to repent because all of us will likewise perish. Jesus takes a very, very, very different view of the evils in the world. He doesn't look at them and say, well, Father, you need to explain this to people because they're asking questions and, you know, they deserve an answer. He doesn't look at it and say, oh, well, you know, you know these are you know, merely little things. Don't worry about them. No, no, no. He says, this is the outcome of living in a world of sin. We're all going to die, Genesis 3. Because of that, we all have a choice to make. Who are we going to live for? See, that's, that's the point. You're going to keep living for yourself, doing the things that sin leads to? Or are you going to repent, go the other way, live your life differently as a result of those things? Every time that happens is simply a reminder for us. From, and so from Adam and Eve to you and me, all of us have willingly chosen to sin. God has allowed that to happen. It's not outside of His plan. The death of Jesus on the cross for our sins and His choosing of us in order to, to save us, all those things were within, within His plans. And our response to the sin around us shows us, I think, far more about ourselves than it does about God. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm trying to get across to you today? That I want you to understand these questions correctly. I want you to see our selfishness and our rebellion because God is calling each and every one of us to repentance through the things that happen to us in this world. I would assume that was the case for Adam and Eve as well. I mean, I can't prove that to you. I got no text. Okay, nothing. This is pure opinion. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and that doesn't impugn on the Scriptures here. But my assumption is, as they are walking away from Eden that day, when God had driven them out, that even the, just, just that act of being forced out and to turn and look and see what they were leaving behind is partially designed to lead them, if not completely designed, to lead them to repentance. And I think we'll see maybe a tad bit of that in chapter 4. But for those of us in this room today, there's no question. 
We need to live our lives with eternity in view because every one of us is going to die. And next week, I think we're going to begin here in chapter 4, I think we'll begin to see how this new life that we're living in, this new world of sin, plays out in terms of what we're going to do and the choices we're going to make on a day-to-day basis. Let's pray. Lord, I just wanted to take a few minutes to address what is normally seen as a very difficult question, and I don't think I've done a good job of it, but that was an important What is important, Lord, is that we understand things correctly. And ultimately, Lord, the issue here for us is not not necessarily what people want to make it out to be. They, They want to turn the evil, the genuine evil that we see in this world into an opportunity to accuse you. Well, the reality is, Lord, it's not an opportunity to accuse you. We live in a a world of sin. We live in a world where sin has consequences, and we see that, and we hate it, but every single one of us keeps willingly choosing to do it. We keep living our lives in sin every single day, and so we're hypocrites to sit back and accuse you when we ourselves embrace it still. Lord, what I really see here is that we learn a whole lot about us that in our rebellion and the rebellion of those around us, it is easier to want to push the blame off of ourselves, place it back on you, to turn our fingers to you and say that you are to blame for these things, but, but you're not. You're not. We are. We are responsible. You made us responsible beings, and every one of us every day choose wrongly. And so, Lord, we see our heart how it continues to rebel. But even more than that, Lord, we miss what I think Jesus is saying is the larger point of all these evils. Yes, they're bad. No one is rejoicing in them. But they teach us to repent because we will all die. We are constantly reminded of death in this world around us, of sin and of pain, of all the things we saw there in Genesis 3. And the right response is for us to turn in repentance to you. And so this morning, Lord, I come on behalf of these people and I simply say to you, Lord, we need to have that thought driven deep into our hearts and minds. Lord, we need to see evil the way you see it. To see disasters and pain and sickness and all those things the way you see it. As opportunities, as reminders to us that a day is coming when we will stand before you. And so, Lord, this morning, if there's anyone in this room who does not know you as their Savior, they have been surrounded, I'm sure, Lord, in their life by all these evil things. If they have continued to point the finger at you and to blame you, Father, will you, by your Spirit, open the eyes of their hearts to see that ultimately, Lord, they are the sinners rightly deserving of punishment? Help them to see Jesus and his death on the cross as their only hope, as the only victory over these things. Help them to submit themselves, to bow the knee of their heart and mind to you, to be submissive to you and willing to see life from your perspective. For those of us in here who are believers, Lord, we too can be tempted to react to the evil around us, and we should, it should bring responses from us. But if that response ever leads us to accusation, Lord, something is is terribly wrong in our hearts. Help us, even as believers, to see the, the evils in this world around us 
as reminders to repentance, as reminders to live our lives for you, so that when our day of death finally does come and we stand before you, we will have done everything in our power to have lived our lives in a manner that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for Genesis. Thank you for this study. I thank you for chapter 3 and all that it has taught us. I pray, Lord, as we continue into chapter 4 next week, that you will just continually be opening our eyes to the truth of how this world is run, how you are active in it, and what your ultimate plan for all of us is in Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to see these things, so we ask that in your precious Son's name. Amen.